Hello, everyone. You are listening to In the Weeds with Monica Jean, an agriculture podcast. This is your host, Monica Jean, and you're listening today to In the Weeds, an agriculture podcast. I'm here today with our very famous guest, Chris Defonzo, an entomologist at MSU. Chris? Hi. Hi, Monica. Hi. How are you doing? I'm, I don't think I'm so famous, but uh, if you want to call me that, you can. Yep, I'm the field crops entomologist here on campus. And today we're going to be talking about um, resistance issues, and we're going to kind of cover, you know, insect versus weed, insecticide resistance versus our, some of our technology resistance, and give some example of those, and hopefully give some resolution too. Um, so to get started here, resistance, such a tri- tricky thing for our farmers to manage. Um, the insect resor- resistance versus weed resistance, there is a difference. Right, Chris? Well, kind of. I mean, the, the principles are still the same. So when you uh, treat an insect or you, you do something to it to uh, uh, for- force the population to change, uh, that is how you get resistance. Resistance actually is a population-level thing. When you spray the insect, you don't cause resistance to happen. You don't cause its body to change so that it becomes resistant. It already has those genetics in its body. So it can detoxify the the pesticide or it can uh, um, excrete it faster or however that is going to happen. So what, what you do do by spraying is you change the population so that the susceptible ones die and the resistant ones win. And over time, that po- more of the winners are in that population, the survivors, rather than the susceptible ones that died. So when we look at resistance, you're driving a population. Whether you're spraying insecticides on insects or miticides on mites or herbicides onto weeds or whatever on plant fungicides, the, it's the same principle for all of those things. You're changing the population to create winners that can survive that spray application. So let's apply that now to an insecticide resistance versus some resistance that we've developed to our technologies like uh, BT. Well, so if you take a step back and you look at herbicides and insecticides, we use a lot of herbicides. So we tend to get, you know, we spray every acre all the time for uh, weed, weed control. For insects, we tend not to spray very much. So for insecticides, um, because we're not using as many, we don't see as many issues with in- insecticide resistance. In fact, I'm trying to think of something in Michigan in field crops that would be insecticide resistant. But when we look at the technology, the, B- the BT crops, those have been planted on very wide acreages. So we've exposed lots of insects on lots of acres to BT corn. It's very different from the minimal amount of insecticide exposure that we've put on just by sprays. So the, the issues with the BT technology, if that's, what you're t- if that's what you mean, that's almost a little bit more like her- herbicide resistance because 
herbicides get used all the time on that population and same with bt in a crop it's always there exposing all the insects that are there on every acre i was thinking of the colorado beetle and potato production i think that would be because they spray that foliarly so it would be yeah so the the colorado potato beetle is actually very famous because um it's been it's been resistant to almost everything that has ever been sprayed on it even arsenic back in the days it's one of the first insects that ever had a spray program for it back in like the 1920s and 30s and so you know it's an insect that eats potato and potato has a lot of secondary compounds in it so it already had a chemical system in its body to break down pesticides. And so everything that we've thrown at Colorado potato beetle, it's become resistant to. And so uh, there are a couple of insects like that that are very famous for their abilities to become resistant. So this Bt resistance, can you explain Bt just real quick for us? Well, Bt stands for Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a mouthful, but it's the name of a bacteria. And about 100 years ago, it was discovered in silkworm production. Uh, silk comes from silkworms, like actual worms. And they were trying to raise them in mass colonies, and uh, they were finding that they were dying. And it was from this pathogen, Bacillus thuringiensis. And it's a naturally occurring bacteria. It's out there. And for whatever reason that we don't quite understand, it makes in its, uh, it makes uh, something called a cry protein, a crystalline protein, that when it's ingested by the proper insect at the proper time, uh, actually disrupts the gut of the insect. So it would be like something disrupting your, in, your stomach or your intestines, um, kind of binding to them and, and making them leaky. So BT insecticides, spray-onable, have been used for many years, and some of them are registered for organic agriculture, but it wasn't until like the mid-1990s when uh, people took the gene for the toxin and then inserted that into corn tissue, into cotton, and a few other crops to make these BT crops that produce the toxin in very large levels so the insect can't escape it. It's always there for them to feed on. So I understand we have two pests that are kind of the most common in Michigan for having an issue to being resistant to BT, and that would be western bean cutworm and rootworm. Could you talk about the causes of those? So, well, the, the first BT crops we had were for European corn borer. Those uh, required a high-dose refuge. Many people out there will remember they had to plant a refuge, and in return, in that BT crop, the, comp- the, the, the company sort of engineered a very high dose of the, of, the, of the BT product. So for corn borer, our BT crops have stood up really well since 1996. Rootworm came second. And it, it's, a, it's a pest that feeds on the roots, and it was harder to get the expression, the amount of BT in the tissue, to be high dose. So even when, when the first rootworm corns came out, I can remember walking fields and seeing rootworms coming out of the ground and being very upset, like, what is going on? And it turns out that in the root tissue, not all the roots were high dose, so there were always survivors. So you had winners coming out of those fields. And within a very short period of time, uh, especially in Iowa and Minnesota with intensive production, a lot of BT acres, uh, 
root, rootworm resistance developed pretty quickly, within three to four years for the CRY3BB. And since then, there's been cross resistance to two other toxins, and then a, a fourth toxin, CRY3435, that has, uh, the efficacy has been diminished. But that's pretty much in the West, not so much in Michigan or Ohio or Ontario. So that, that issue is still very important in the Western Plains. And then Western bean cutworm? So Western bean cutworm was a little bit different. It wasn't a failure of like the high dose refuge kind of thing. Western bean cutworm was an insect that was uh, found in Nebraska, Colorado, Wyoming, you know, 100 years ago. And it started to move eastward only in about 2000. It came into Iowa, and then it kind of crept slowly across the northern tier of the Corn Belt through Ontario, Michigan, all the way to the east coast now. Uh, there's not, we, we don't exactly know why that that happened, but it, it, in other words, it expanded its, its range. Um, the BTs that controlled corn borer didn't all control western bean cutworm. There was one that did, though. It was Cry1F, the Herculex toxin. And so that was really heavily marketed for a, for a few years there against western bean. But it turns out that I don't think it's high dose on, on, on western bean. And in that same time frame, we were moving from a structured refuge, like 20%, to refuge in the bag. And so when you have survivors and they're in a refuge in the bag with 5% refuge seeds crawling between plants, uh, it seems like resistance evolved very rapidly in that, in that insect. And the failures happened to the east, even over to Nebraska, to the point where the company uh, pulled that pest from its Cry1F label. I understand you've been in a field. Can you paint us a picture of what that fail, feel, field that failed looked like? Well, it depends on the insect. For, for corn rootworm, the very few failed fields that we've had in Michigan were very distinct. Uh, they were like lodged in August, falling down. There were so many beetles in the field that I have a colleague that calls this a shut your mouth field because there's so many beetles that <laughs> you have to shut your mouth. And uh, I, it, there were so many beetles, they had all the silks mowed down. Like there was no silk showing above the husk and, they, and their little butts were sticking up. I mean, maybe 10 beetles per, per plant. And you knew that field was a huge failure. It went from something like 200 and some bushels an acre, and that year it was 13. Um, the western bean cutworm failing fields were a little bit different story. They're feeding on the ear itself and on the kernels, and uh, they tend to uh, leave a very messy ear, a lot of frass in there, and secondary insects get in there and chew, like sap beetles, and even corn rootworms will get in there and chew if they're kind of opened up. And, uh, and with, western bean, with western bean cutworm, we often get some secondary ear, ear mold issues. And some of those, of course, produce mycotoxins. So for western bean, that mycotoxin issue means that even just a little bit of damage can create the, the, the pathogen issue with it or can in, enhance that. Issue. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. So, and, that, and there's not a lot of play there for mycogen contamination in seeds. So, or grain. so what technology do we have left to use then? Well, I mean, for corn rootworm, the classic way to control corn rootworm is crop rotation. You know, I mean, 
I always tell growers, even if, if, if you don't remember that that field was ever rotated, it's probably time to rotate it. If you're rotating now, keep doing it. Keep throwing soybean in there, whatever, whatever you can rotate to. And, and we're very fortunate because in Michigan and to the east, we have more diverse field crops, smaller fields. We can do more crop rotation. For guys that are continuous corn, if you can throw crop rotation in there, even every third year, fourth year, fifth year, it's better than nothing. So crop rotation is very important. It's old school, but it gets the job done. And it's really important to keep rotation in, in, into the scheme. The one thing that we don't like to see is when guys will use a BT, and let's say it's failing, and then they throw an insecticide over on, on, on top of it. All the insecticide is doing is masking the problem and not tipping you off that something bad is happening. So we don't like to see BTs with these full rates of insecticides on, on them. I believe you've been or you've heard of a field, right, that they, instead of rotating, went back and used like a pyramid and didn't turn out. Yes, that was the very first resistant field that I ever saw, the one that went to 13 bushels an acre. Um, I kind of had the guy maybe kind of convinced he might rotate, but then he got some free seed, and I think it was a, a, a pyramid. And uh, it might have worked for that first year, but then the second year when I, when I went back, magically, suddenly, the field, which had never been rotated ever, was in soybeans for that, for that year. And I'm sure that uh, he had some just resistance problems that had re reoccurred. I want to just enunciate something you said, because a lot of times I get asked, but does it pay 13 bushel an acre corn? So rotating would have paid it would have uh again that 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 first year with the with the was with the 13 bushels that was his that was the year that we discovered this this yeah. uh problem but you know i don't know what happened the the second year because sometimes i don't get those, it didn't sound those, those like calls. it worked out too good no it did not the following and, but 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 to be fair you know in that area which is like the saint john's area i call it the rootworm black black hole area for michigan um there were a few failed fields over a few years, um, but you know, most of them did get rotated. And uh, then the rootworm populations kind of went, went down for a, for a while. But that's why I think we're not like Iowa. I mean, my impression is that in Iowa and Minnesota and some of these places, you're probably uh, planting an expensive BT corn multi-pyramid thing and putting a, a soil insecticide over top where we can get by without that. And it's because we have crop rotation and other crops in the system. And I think we do a better job of keeping those rootworm populations down. Now, I want to get in the weeds a little bit here. You don't want to be the epicenter of these, right? I mean, if, if, if you, you should rotate because you're fellow friends fields could uh you know you could be sharing it. yeah i mean i i i've i've used the term that you can be a beetle volcano where <laughs> if good. if you're you know, the, these fields that have failed are so dramatic they're the pressure in them is extremely high and there's a lot of beetles and yeah they do stay in that field and kind of mate and lay eggs but then once that once the silks in, the, in those fields dry, they will move to the to the neighbors or to your to your own field that's down the way, and and so a resistance problem, you know maybe you create it, but you also give it away when uh, to to the neighbors and and to your other fields. So we've been talking about corn rootworm. Can we kind of apply what we've been discussing to western bean cutworm as well? 
Uh, not so much because crop rotation wouldn't help with western bean cutworm. They can fly pretty far. Um, they're not necessarily tied to a particular field to like mate and, and, and lay eggs. So for western bean cutworm, the solution is unfortunately to kind of go back to old school scouting and then treating if you have to. Now we can, unlike for rootworm, we can use a bucket trap and a pheromone uh, uh, lure to at least see the timing of the western bean cutworm flight because this is a moth and the males and females are going around to find each other to, to mate. So we can use a bucket trap, kind of get a timing, a peak flight. That's when you would go out into your cornfields and pre-tassel and just tasseling cornfields are the most attractive. So unlike rootworms, which are emerging where their eggs were laid and causing damage, western bean is going somewhere. It, the eggs are being deposited where the female is finding the most uh, exciting corn for her. <laughs> so, so one year you may have no damage and think, why, what, what happened? Well, your corn was a little early, a little bit late. It didn't match up with peak flight. Another year, you get hammered and your neighbor, your, your, your neighbor doesn't. So it's worth scouting for, for, for Western bean cutworm um, in order to uh, find the egg masses and see if you're over threshold. And then at that point, a spray would be justified. But I think a lot of times you'll find that the fields have nothing in them. And it's only a few fields that are going to match up. Yeah, out of four years, I think out of one, I had found some fields that they had met threshold and yeah. recommended spraying. Now, if you're in an area where there's dry beans present, that that's an, that's an additional risk. So if you get into central Michigan or maybe into the thumb, because bizarrely enough, this insect feeds on both. And, it, and, uh, and so if you're in a dry bean landscape, the pressure tends to be a little bit higher. Um, most people kind of know that already. They've already experienced some western bean cutworm issues if they're in a dry bean area. The other hot spot that we've had seems to be like um, Allegan County, like Grand Rapids South. That has, o over the years, we've had uh, uh, individual fields or neighborhoods with a lot of western bean cutworm and especially after Cry1F failed, and then some of these ear, ear mold issues on top of it. So if you're right now a farmer thinking, ooh, this trapping stuff sounds kind of cool, just know the field crops team usually has a scheme of traps they try to put in their regions, and you can find out who's in your region on the field crops team um, webpage. And getting in touch with that person could get you some traps in your farm, and you can be a part of that regional collection. And it's powers and number and then um, being repeated year over year over right. year. And so if you have an interest and you have a long-term interest, please call your local extension educator in the field crops team, and they'd be happy to join, uh, put you on your list for next year. Yeah, there are some insects where the trap number tells you to do something. You know, uh, I'm trying to think of a certain pest, and I, I can't right now. But, you know, uh, you get five, and that means do nothing, and you get ten, and now you have to spray. That's not how it works for a lot of our pest leps that are in corn, like corn borer and uh, armyworm and western bean cutworm. The trap is is a scouting helper. It's it's try it's telling you that you're that you have a heavy flight relative to previous years or the timing of the flight so that you can go out and be efficient in scouting and scout at the right time because it's so you know difficult and hard to walk into cornfields you're not just going to do that every single week for no for no reason so that's what our trapping um, actually tells us 
So since we just talked about some resources that the MSU Extension Field Crops team provides, I want to loop back to that you also have some resources too. Um, there is a field crops entomology webpage, and that would uh, contain your BT trait table. Yeah, so every year we update the handy BT trait table. I think most growers have heard of that. I was too stupid to remember all the kinds of BTs and all the trait names. So over the years, I just kept, I keep a collection of that and it's become a thing that people kind of expect. And it usually gets updated in October, November for the, for the, for the new year. And it actually has its own website at Texas A&M. My colleague there, we have a, if you link to that website, then the, then within that you click on the table and the table's always recent. You don't want to use an old an old table. So if you just googled you know, Texas A&M handy BT trade table, it should come up as, as the first thing. The way it's listed on our website too, below that, she then has additional PDF like downloadable um, scouting tips and tricks several different kinds of pests so yeah. uh if that you get is, on that webpage, you'll see some of that and and you can also find chris's contact information on there too that that is one thing that probably is a disconnect after all the years of bt you know we got a little bit lazy and the corn kind of did the job for us and we probably have a whole generation of people that don't remember scouting or never scouted for some of these insects and it's not easy i mean we always talk about scouting but it is not easy to go into corn and be familiar with where the egg masses are going to be and kind of where where you have to look and even time of day can make a difference by where the sun is positioned Um, army worm is one i find yeah and you know if you're short versus tall it can make i mean there there are you know and and corn is tall and it cuts you and there's pollen and and so you know we make scouting sound so easy it's sometimes it just isn't and what what we do um lack in this state and we've talked about before is that uh, if you wanted to find somebody to scout for you because you felt more comfortable doing that we don't have a lot of choices there's maybe your local ag business that might be also selling pesticide but in some states there there are uh, a whole cadre of like professional crop scouts that just sell advice and we don't have as many of those that and that's i think one of the hardest um things about being in this eastern corn belt is that that knowledge that person that you can hire may not necessarily be there it gets easier and you get more efficient the more you do it yeah if you're interested in learning your extension educator and also those hands out handouts i refer to are good are a good place to start yeah and yeah, yeah maybe some winter uh, some winter uh, winter or summer uh, meetings yeah so Chris thank you so much for joining us today I think we've uh, dove in and got in the weeds on this insect um, resistance insecticide resistance technology resistance and it it's was all really the great same to have you. all resistance happens the same yeah so. all right well thank you everyone for joining us um, please stay tuned for more podcasts. This podcast has been brought to you by the MSU Extension Field Crops Team. For more podcasts or information, please visit us at canr.msu.edu backslash field underscore crops. Thanks for listening.